Recorded live. This is an interactive, interactive. interactive podcast designed for audience participation. Come talk, talk, talk. text chat, or listen live at TalkShoe.com. Good day, wherever you are listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe. Here with me back in the studio this week is my co-host, Cliff Slotnick, and cyber jockey, Zach Slotnick. Morning, Joe. Good morning. Good morning, Joe. Hello, Zach. Welcome back to Pittsburgh. I'm back myself. I was on the road last week. This week in Greenville, the weeks are running together. Also on the phone with us is our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. If we unmute Dieter, he can say hello to the gang. Hello, Dieter. Can you hear us? Hi there. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good evening. Whatever the case may Wherever be. Wherever you may be. Hey, Dieter, hang in there with, with me for just a moment. We're going to mute you, then I want to bring you back in for just a moment. Sure. First, I need to thank our sponsors for this week, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com, and our other original and continuing sponsor, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. For those of you that are interested in advertising opportunities, we will soon have our own ads on the TalkShoe page. We have gotten rid of the Google ads because uh, it cost us a few dollars, but we didn't want just any old ad up there uh, with the uh, toxic killer black mold stuff. So we got rid of a lot of that, and we are now preparing to add uh, segments on our page where people who are interested in advertising can join us. Today's guest is actually going to be my co-host, Cliff Slotnick. We have had several requests now for Cliff to discuss a little bit about his insights on antimicrobials. Before we start, we'd like to talk about contacting the show. We're live every Friday at noon. You can have an email reminder sent to you and Simply email us at info at iaqtraining.com, and we will send you a reminder. To call in live, you must go to the www.talkshoe.com website, sign up for your 10-digit PIN number. We suggest a phone number that's easy to remember. In the past, I've said, use your mother's phone number and then give her a call after the show if you're lucky enough to still have a mother to call. Then dial 724-444-7444. The show PIN number is 1547. Then you will have to enter your 10-digit PIN number that you created. And you can also text message in using the same the same process. Getting a little back uh, feedback after that last move, Zach. I'm not sure what that was. Anyhow, let me introduce our guest, Cliff Zlotnick. For those of you who aren't familiar with Cliff, entered the disaster restoration field in 1974 when he founded Unsmoke Services, a smoke odor removal company, which eventually expanded and became an internationally renowned full-service fire and water damage restoration firm. As an industry-recognized authority on disaster restoration and odor removal, 
He's developed products, techniques, and procedures which have become industry standards. Cliff has provided consulting services to governments, insurance companies, and attorneys. Summoned into Kuwait at the conclusion of Desert Storm, he counseled the Kuwaiti government, various Kuwaiti businesses, and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. He is also an instructor for the Association of Specialists in Cleaning and Restoration, the Mid-Atlantic Environmental Hygiene Resource Center, and the IICRC. Has prevented new, presented excuse me, numerous water damage, odor, smoke, fire, and I should add mold remediation training programs, schools throughout the United States, Canada, and the U.K., Active in industry service, Cliff is a founding member of the Tri-State Specialty Cleaners and Restorers Association, whom he represents as a board member of the IICRC. He's also a past president of the, president of the Association of Specialists in Cleaning and Restoration and an honored recipient of ACR's Golden Quill, Martin King, and Distinguished Services Awards, and I believe... We should add Clean Facts Person of the Year last year, Cliff. My goodness, you're going to need uh, another page to add all the accolades that you've uh, received over the years. Thanks, Jay. You're kind to mention them all. I certainly didn't make you do that. <laughs> no, you didn't. But I think our listeners deserve to know who we have here. Uh, we we try to sit back and allow our guests to express their opinions without really um, – challenging or any of those things and and I, I think that's important but from time to time i think it's also important that we get our own opinions out there on the air cliff and uh before we do let me just bring the the good doctor back in here Dieter, are you still there yes i am can just, you hear me yes i just wanted to do a, a sound check with you there and also welcome you back to good old pennsylvania here in the balmy pennsylvania winter uh, we're in our shorts and T-shirts here in Pennsylvania. Beautiful weather here. Aloha to those of you in Hawaii. I'm sorry about the bad weather out there, but you'll get over it. Anyhow, Dieter, Indiana. I understand you were in Indiana last week. In yes, indeed. In interesting experience. Uh, Indianapolis, yeah. Basically a mock trial. And I had a brief chance to look a little bit around downtown Indianapolis, which is absolutely gorgeous. You know, when you told me about the extent that these attorneys go to for these mock trials, I was, you know, I had, I had heard that before for like, you know, maybe the O.J. Simpson trial or something like yeah. that. But I didn't realize it went on with uh, the type of case you're working on. This is an asbestos case, isn't it? Those are, <coughs> yes, asbestos issues. And actually, this is the second one that we had uh, put together. Two mock trials. Yep. Twelve attorneys, I understand. Yeah, something, something like that. Like that. And uh, plus, running plus uh, more, yeah. A jury? They they hired a jury. To come <laughs> well, in? yes. Interesting, interesting, Dieter. That that has to be fascinating. We'll talk more about that on a future show. But I'd like to get back to Cliff and um, Dieter. If you have any questions you'd like to throw in there while we're on the line, please, please get back I to us. And I Chad, I want to thank Chad out there for the sounds good. Uh, we we appreciate the feedback. Dieter, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no problem. I shall be here, and I shall be listening. Thank you. Well, let's get over Cliff before we start asking questions. Why don't you give us a little background on I, this I, on this subject? I'd be glad to do that, Joe. Before I get involved with any of that, though, we do have a microband question oh. for the week, a trivia question, which we would like to introduce. 
Um, I can give a hint that it has something to do with antimicrobials. I would like you to name this chemical compound. So we're looking for you to name this chemical compound. The chemical compound is C27H42ClNO2. I'll repeat it. C27H42ClNO2. One more time. C27H42ClNO2. CLNO2. I wanted to get that in writing so I can... I don't know the answers to these questions, by the way. Cliff keeps them a pretty well-kept secret. And by the way, there's still two on the board from last week. Absolutely. And uh, we're not going to repeat them. You have to go back and listen to the show and get your prize that way. Although uh, we have three people now, I believe, in the Parade of Champions Absolutely, of the we Trivias. Do. We need a fourth one out there. Let's uh, get on those trivia questions. All right, Cliff, give us a little background. On okay, these, Joe, uh, let, me, let me provide some background, provide some general comments, and then answer any questions that you have or that the audience has. It probably makes sense to do it this way, only so uh, the listeners have a different experience level. Some of them know exactly what we're talking about. Some of them may not. Some of them are in between. So in any event, it's my opinion that biocides and antimicrobials are important tools for remediation contractors. While North America appears to be obsessed with the war against Stachybotrys, the toxic killer mold, in the balance of the world where, coincidentally, there are fewer attorneys and less TV, the fight is against infectious disease. While renowned North American professionals disagree over the health threat posed by toxic mold, Alarming statistics confirm that nosocomial or hospital-related infection remains the fourth leading cause of death in the United States. Microorganisms abound in our environment. Microorganisms are found in the air we breathe, on and in our bodies, and on all surfaces in which we come contact. The fact that microorganisms accumulate on surfaces is not surprising. These organisms may come from spills of floods and drinks, foot traffic, family pets, moisture intrusion such as equipment malfunctions, broken pipes, pipe overflow or pipe overflows and sewage backups. Other sources include bioaerosols, poor personal hygiene, and byproducts of illness. A commonly overlooked fact is that humans are directly and indirectly responsible for many of the microorganisms found in the indoor built environment. The conditions that stimulate the growth of microorganisms are food source and nutrient, suitable temperature, humidity, or moisture. The byproducts of microbial growth and their metabolic byproducts cause both odor problems and health problems. We're all too familiar with the dank, musty smell of mold and mildew that's caused by MVOCs, microbial volatile organic compounds, and the accompanying unsightly stains and discoloration. Mold and mildew discolor textiles and often deteriorate yarns and backing materials. The growth of pathogenic or disease-causing microorganisms can cause the spread of disease and infection. Yeast and mold spores can aggravate or trigger allergenic responses. This is not new information for either us or our customers. The healthcare industry has long recognized the need to clean and sanitize its environments for the health, safety, and comfort of their patients and staff. Microbial remediators really are hired guns. They are called upon to provide a wide range of microbial remediation services, from mold remediation, trauma cleaning, 
bat guano cleanup and even decontamination following bioterrorism are some of the tasks that we may be called upon to handle. The microbial remedial arsenal of chemicals is highly effective. There are specialized chemicals, often called biocides, available to microbial remediation contractors, which are capable of destroying pathogenic viruses, bacteria, and spores. All biocides act by harming microorganisms in one way or another. Biocides vary in their modes of action. Modes of action include denaturing or cooking without heat, disruption of cell membranes, nucleic acid damage, and inhibition of metabolic processes. Classes of antimicrobials include sterlants, disinfectants, sanitizers, and bacteriostatic or fungistatic agents. The Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, or FIFRA, governs the manufacture, sale, and use of these types of products, which are pesticides. Antimicrobials and biocides are often considered pesticides under FIFRA. As with most laws, there are inconsistencies with both the interpretation and the enforcement of FIFRA. For instance, cleansers such as mildew stain removers and deodorizers are exempt from FIFRA. The incorporation of biocides into finished products such as coatings and encapsulants is permitted under what is called a treated article exemption under FIFRA. Undoubtedly, Joseph Lister, who lived between 1827 and 1912, was disinfection's pioneer. Lister was intrigued by the scientific work of French chemist Louis Pasteur, who theorized that tiny living organisms floating on air attack matter and cause putrefaction. While a professor of surgery at Glasgow University, Lister developed the concept of antiseptic surgery. Lister was intrigued by carbolic acid, or phenol, a German chemical being used for treating sewage. Lister used carbolic acid in surgical dressings and developed methods to atomize it into the air during surgery, a procedure that was unpleasant to physicians, attendants, and patients alike. To protect their hands from harsh carbolic acid, surgeons began wearing protective gloves, which is another mechanism of infection control. But using carbolic acid significantly and notably reduced the infection rate and saved many lives. Consumer awareness and preferences. Our microbial remediation clients are very concerned with the microbial contamination within their indoor environment. Madison Avenue advertising agencies have done much to heighten the consumer's awareness of antimicrobial products. Look in your kitchen, bath, and laundry room, and chances are, more likely than not, you will have one or more of the following products. Antimicrobial hand soap, dishwashing liquid, antimicrobial general purpose cleaners, cleaning wipes, etc. The average house has at least seven of these products. We carry containers of waterless hand sanitizers in our vehicles, purses, and briefcases. The sales statistics prove that the public has a significant aversion to microorganisms. The general public is paranoid about germs and uneasy about killer mold. Don't overlook the high probability that most clients want antimicrobials used during the remediation of their indoor environment. The human mind is a very powerful force. A phobia is an abnormal fear or dread. The same people may be fearful of both chemicals and microorganisms. When a client is emotionally attached to an item, there is a very high probability that the outcome of your restoration efforts will be favorable. When a client has decided that an item cannot be remedied to their satisfaction, there is little or nothing you can do to overcome that objection.
There are some commonly cited reasons for not recommending the use of biocides, and I would like to give the reason and comment upon those reasons. The first is that biocides add unnecessary toxins to the indoor environment. Biocides do harm microorganisms, thus by definition they are toxic. We overlook the fact that indoor environments have pre-existing loads of background chemicals. We ignore the fact that, most has, that more hazardous chemicals than those used for microbial remediation are commonly found under the kitchen sink, the laundry room, the nursery, the basement, the garage, and the garden shed. Consumers routinely apply these materials on, in, and around the indoor environment without thinking about it. Remember, the dose makes the poison. Biocides are neither safer nor are they more toxic than common household products. In high enough concentration or under the right set of circumstances, everything is toxic. Another comment that we hear is that biocides don't kill mold spores. Microorganisms differ in their susceptibility to antimicrobial agents. Fungi and bacteria are generally killed by disinfectants, while bacterial endospores, such as anthrax and bacillus, some viruses, and some vegetative bacteria are also highly resistant to biocides. The same organism may vary in its susceptibility to a biocide depending on its growth phase. It might not kill it in spore state, but once it begins to grow, then they can be effective on them. Actively growing organisms are commonly much more vulnerable to biocides than not growing dormant organisms. Another thing we hear is applying biocides dislodges mold spores. Dissemination of fungal spores is more likely to occur during demolition. Dissemination of spores is more likely to be influenced by an environmental factor, such as low water activity on the surfaces where they're growing, and perhaps a simple study using a particle counter to monitor which demolition or whether demolition or chemical application methods release the lowest levels will finally put this to rest. Mold spores are moisture resistant. Mold spores in many types of soils are hydrophobic or moisture resistant, which is why many antimicrobial products contain surfactants and detergents to assist them in penetrating soils and cells. Another thing we hear is biocides don't detoxify microbial toxins, a statement painted with a very, very wide brush. I'd like to know which biocides were tested against which mycotoxins. In fact, the Clorox company did a study where they proved that chlorine bleach, their Clorox product, was successful in detoxifying toxins. Disagreement or agreement on the use of biocides. There are staunch opinions on both sides of the issue. And you need to listen to the wisdom of people on both sides before you make your determination. Establishing reasonable and achievable goals. Sterility is an absolute condition. A surface, material, or object is either sterile as it is not. There, is no, there are no gradients in sterility. So selection of biocides should be driven by a specific goal. Different challenges require different solutions. Sterility is only important on medical instruments. Generally, in an indoor environment, it's an unachievable goal. The successfulness of our efforts is often determined by the surface we are treating and our application method. Hard surfaces can easily be disinfected, while porous surfaces can only be sanitized. For best results, always pre-clean to remove gross filth and allow adequate contact time. 
When applying biocides to surfaces, use minimum pressure and maximum droplet size to prevent drift. Some biocide selection criteria. Remember, there is no such thing as an ideal biocide that's ideal for all situations. Some factors that you might to consider in making your selection. What type of surface will we be treating? Is it porous or non-porous? Is it natural or is it synthetic? Is it a manufactured wood product or is it paper? Some materials such as wood and drywall have a built-in organic load because they're cellulosic. For these materials, a combination cleaner and disinfectant might be most appropriate. Concrete is highly porous and is an alkaline material. You might want to use a mildly acid combination cleaner disinfectant for decontaminating concrete. Think about whether or not the biocide is compatible with the target surface. Some biocides are corrosive and require rinsing or chemical neutralization. The pH of the biocide is important. Is it acid? Is it alkaline? Or is it neutral? And is it highly acid or highly alkaline? Higher pH formulations typically have superior soil removal capabilities. Is residual action desirable? Some biocides have residual action, and you're paying for that. And it you know, why wash it away? In other situations, people may decide to wash it away. Employee training and learning disabilities. The most important prerequisite of a successful biocide application program is the worker. For many workers, English is a second language. Other workers have learning disabilities or may be illiterate. Can an employee incapable of reading a product's label instructions properly adhere to them? I wonder. Application methods. Misapplication of biocides is often related to improper selection of application devices. To prevent possible contamination and ensure best results, the use of dedicated application equipment is highly recommended. Ask your biocide supplier for his or her recommended application rates and methods. Simply purchasing a pump-up sprayer at a hardware store or building supply center often results in equipment engineered for spraying turf fitted with hollow cone nozzles, resulting in sloppy, wasteful applications. Sprayers fitted with electrically powered pumps are preferred because they create a consistent spray pattern. Sewage and large-scale decontamination. Apply antimicrobials with a pressure washer to simultaneously clean and sanitize affected surfaces and materials. Devices called foam generators are available, which transform antimicrobials from liquids to dense foams which cling to surfaces for extended periods of time. Disposable wipers. Think about saturating absorbent synthetic wipers in biocides and discarding them after their first use. What about fogging? Fogging is useful for purposes of air sanitizing, which is temporarily reducing airborne microbial counts for dust suppression during demolition or the cleanup of bat guano or pigeon feces. We should not apply biocides for the wrong reasons. You know, the customer says, can't you just spray something? Don't apply antimicrobials to unsalvageable materials or surfaces just to placate an insurance adjuster or a property owner. Use antimicrobials for the right reasons. The first microorganisms to amplify in water damage situations are bacteria. Bacteria are invisible. Bacteria grow in environments which are too wet to support fungi, which is a reason why I'm an advocate for the use of biocides or antimicrobials during emergency response to water damages. Wood and paper inherently have a built-in bio-burden. Fungi general grow, generally grow into the materials that they digest. HEPA vacuuming commonly 
removes fungal spores and some of the hyphae, but some of the hyphae is left behind. So applying both a biocide and an antimicrobial coating can provide long-term protection. Use antimicrobials for routine cleaning and decontamination of your restoration equipment. If you're going to clean or damp wipe surfaces with water and detergent, why not use a combination cleaner and disinfectant to get the added action of antimicrobial suppression? There's often a strong psychological component to a microbial remediation project. Many clients feel better knowing that antimicrobial agents were used. Following remediation, we can create visible lines of demarcation by applying antimicrobial coatings to affected areas as part of the remediation process. We can tell what was remediated. We can tell what was not. As an aid, use antimicrobials as an aid to prevent cross-contamination. Saturate entrance mats or fill shallow pans with antimicrobials to help prevent cross-contamination related to foot traffic. Use them for dust control during demolition. Wet debris bags when being passed through containment. We can't see what we're trying to remove, so damp wiping with an antimicrobial is likely to remove contaminants which are left behind by vacuuming. In certain situations, using antimicrobials is necessary in mold remediation to obtain third-party clearance. In sewage intrusion, where we're dealing with pathogens such as Pseudomonas and E. coli and controlling bacterial odors, they're essential. Bird or bat waste. Biocides play an important role in controlling pathogenic fungal organisms such as Histoplasma capsulatum and Cryptococcus neoformans that cause histoplasmosis and meningitis. Carpet sanitizing is part of the mold remediation process. Specialized sanitizers lower the counts of settled fungal spores and bacteria during the microbial remediation of salvageable carpets and are beneficial in the routine maintenance of schools, daycare centers, and healthcare facilities. Be responsible. Much of the sentiment against the use of biocides and antimicrobials is anchored in incidents of careless and irresponsible use. Also be legal. FIFRA governs the use of biocides and antimicrobials. FIFRA is enforced on a state-by-state basis. Some states may require applicators of antimicrobials to have a pest control license. The product label is a legal document and is the best source of information regarding antimicrobial agents. Adhering to the label instructions provides some legal protection as the government has drafted verbiage on registered product labels such as warnings, disposal instructions, environmental impact statements, etc. Always follow the label instructions. Consider the product label the law. Always make a fair profit. The proper application of antimicrobials requires suitable application equipment and a knowledgeable and trained workforce. Application of antimicrobials affords an excellent profit margin. Make a fair profit margin. Don't be greedy and price gouge when you're using them. Material safety data sheets, and oftentimes people get confused with the difference between the material safety data sheet and the product label. When we're dealing with an antimicrobial product, the product label is the primary and most important document and is the best source of information regarding antimicrobial agents. Risk management. It's my opinion that the microbial remediation industry doesn't use appropriate risk management strategies in regard to the use of biocides. 
Unfortunately, we often create potential problems for ourselves by first heightening the customer's awareness to chemicals and then providing them with written information that can easily be taken out of context. I'm sure that more than one person has manifested exposure symptoms after reading about them on a material safety data sheet. Remember, the best source of information regarding an antimicrobial product is the product label. I suggest giving a copy of the product label to the customer along with the material safety data sheet. You know, I've discussed this risk management strategy with a very noteworthy and high-profile West Coast plaintiff's attorney who has plenty of mold claims experience. He thinks that this strategy is on point and actually agreed to help us develop the document. In conclusion, we don't live in an ideal world where all contaminated materials can be completely and affordably removed. My advice is to always do the best you can when remediating microbial contaminated surfaces. First clean and sanitize them, and then provide long-term residual protection with an application of an antimicrobial encapsulant or sealer. Well, I think you've answered quite a few questions there, Cliff. We... um First of all, I would like to mention to the readers, I, I assume that most of this comes from an article or a uh, paper that you have available. Is it something that we can send to uh, listeners? Absolutely. Uh, we have this in writing and uh, a transcript of it, and should listeners wish to have it, uh, we'd be glad to provide it. Uh, right. The document was also published in Indoor Environmental Connections uh, I understand. I got a little confused partway through, and I know this is something that confuses a lot of people in the industry. The terminology, biocides, antimicrobials, ACGIH in their document, uh, bioaerosol assessment and control, they use the terminology biocides. And EPA, I understand, uses the terminology antimicrobial. And I noticed you kind of switched between the two a little bit there which which would you prefer which would you prefer people use i my personal opinion is the word antimicrobial is more appropriate the reason for that is the branch of the environmental protection agency which governs these types of products is called the antimicrobial branch so that's what the government regulatory body calls itself uh, i actually had a book, I have a book of definitions that are, you know, governmental definitions in which the word biocide did not exist. They had definitions for disinfectant and sanitizer and sterilant and static agents and so on and so forth. So that term is not necessarily used by the government, and that's why I really don't think we should be using it in the industry. The reason that I wove it back and forth and in and out is through the IICRC, the term biocide has been popularized, that term, and it's, it's, it appears in several of their um, standards. standards that they've published. It appears as exam questions and so on and so forth, so uh, I think that they've now become synonymous, but again, I would like to move back to the proper term of antimicrobial and then describe which type that it would be, sanitizer, disinfectant, sterilant, stat, etc. So a sanitizer, let me let me see if I have this correct. A sanitizer, let's say we have a what would be considered a disinfectant when you used it on a hard non-porous surface. Could you use that same sanitizer in some cases depending on the label as you mentioned? on a non-porous surface, uh, 
and that disinfectant would then be considered a, a sanitizer because it's being used on a non-porous surface or a porous surface, excuse me? Well, let's go back. Um, there is, the government has a, a definition, and this actually gets involved with one of the trivia questions that we had asked uh, sometime in the past. That's right. Okay. And uh, one of the questions was, the government's definition of sanitizer on a hard surface is destroying 99.99% of the target organism that's in, sanitizer? in 60 seconds. Okay. That's a sanitizer. Okay. So commonly, when you go into a fast food restaurant, when you go into a bar, etc., and the waitress comes over and sprays something on your table while you're sitting there, and she's not asking you to sign a document and she do this, and none of you are wearing respiratory protection. Those products are commonly sanitizers. Now, the difference between a sanitizer and a disinfectant is you need to get another log. So it's 99.999% of the organisms. So in many situations, what, what a, a manufacturer of products will do is I want to be sure that I'm killing those organisms because I'm paying for a test. And that the, the results of that test pass or fail or public knowledge. So I want to be sure that I'm going to pass. So it's kind of like if you're shooting a rabbit and you're not sure whether the BB gun's going to work, uh, we're looking for more ammunition. In this case, we're not going to make the product stronger, but what we're going to do is increase the contact time. I see. Okay, now, the EPA does have a specific uh, test protocol, and they do register what we would call carpet sanitizing products. So there are products that can be used for killing, uh, for sanitizing carpet. They have their own test regimen and so on and so forth. But um, not all sanitizers are disinfectants. Uh, I would suspect that most disinfectants would work as a sanitizer. However, they, it goes to what they've tested the product for and what's on the product label. I see. That's uh, a common misconception, I think, out there in the industry, and I'm glad you cleared that up. The other things that um, I hear, and I, you know, I, I must be honest, I, I teach these mold remediation courses, and I typically will try to present both sides of the story. There are numerous people in the industry that are very um, much against the use of these disinfectants and antimicrobials on mold remediation projects. And um, you've discussed some of the reasons and responded to some of those reasons in your initial discussion. One of the most uh, often heard reasons for not wanting to use antimicrobials is that you are adding additional chemicals to an environment where we may have people that are already sensitive to whatever it is in the environment that um, they're claiming health effects from. And I noticed that you talked about that a bit in your um, session here, or your, your early segment. I'm, I'm just curious, um, where do you think that comes from, the uh, fact that people are reacting? Have we had reports to that effect, that uh, people have had these reactions, or do you have any uh, documentation to that effect, that people have had these reactions, or... Is it uh, something that you think is just a tale that's been passed along over the years and now people are just repeating what they've heard in the past? Well, I think that, there, that you've asked me a number of questions, and, and uh, what I'll try to do is comment 
you know, I'll try to give you a number of comments uh, for the question. Okay. I think, you know, first of all, certainly uh, anyone can develop an allergic reaction to anything. You know, what an allergic reaction is is a reaction that a minority of the population has to something, not the majority. Because if we all reacted that way, uh, then it wouldn't be uh, an allergic reaction. So certainly people can have an allergic reaction. And oftentimes one of the things that happens is uh, a product was used in my house, uh, the painter painted my ceiling, I began coughing, therefore the painter painting my ceiling or the product that was used in my house caused my, uh, my, my physical reaction. Okay. Okay. And it may, it may not. And I think what happens is in many times people jump to these conclusions and they make their own diagnosis. And what they'll do is they'll go to the doctor. They'll say, uh, my house was painted. All of a sudden I began to sneeze and I began to cough. Uh, my baby got sick. Therefore, I think the paint's uh, making me ill. And what does the doctor do? I mean, what he does is he enters this information as part of the medical chart, as part of the file. And really, if you think about it, this is the beginning of a legal case which may be unfounded. That's one of the reasons why I'm a believer in a loser pays legal system that it, you know, if, if our product injures someone and the customer can prove that, they should be compensated. I mean, absolutely. The difference is if it didn't injure them, and this is either... Uh, mentally manifested symptoms, or this is some attempt to uh, uh, obtain financial profit by doing this, then I think that uh, they shouldn't get compensation. Now, what we need to think about is, you know, what are chemicals? You know, when we breathe, when we inhale, and when we exhale, there are chemicals there. Water's a chemical. You know, as part of remediation, what are we going to use? soap and water in many situations. The products in their use concentrations that we're using, when we're using them, are no different, are no more dangerous. And in fact, we know what the hazards are. You know, for instance, uh, any antimicrobial product is held to a much higher standard than a household cleaner. There are toxicology tests, you know, all sorts of terrible studies done to animals. Uh, you know, they spray it in animals' eyes. They actually uh, shave off the hair and they scratch the animal's skin and they put the chemical, uh, you know, on the skin. They force feed it to rats till they kill half of them. Uh, they make animals inhale it till they kill half of them and they get these LD50s or lethal dose 50%. And then they can extrapolate information and determine what the effect is of these things on humans. But the amazing thing, Joe, go to Home Depot. You know, when you go to Home Depot, you walk down the aisles, and let's say you go in the power tool section, and you're not sure which power tool you want. There's yellow ones and red ones and blue ones. And, you know, the salesman comes over, and he kind of helps you make a decision. He tells you all the different attachments that you can get, all the different bits. You know, he doesn't tell you that you can, if you're using it in the rain, you can get electrocuted. He doesn't tell you how many people get their fingers cut off with it. He doesn't ask you to sign a, a form in order to buy it. I mean, our industry's crazy, and it's self-destructive, some of the things Actually, that we're doing. You, you'd mentioned some toxicology, and um, I've got one of the one of the people I respect most on toxicology, I believe he's still on the line. Dr. Wow, are you still there? I, I'm here. Dieter, I'm, I'm curious. Um, Cliff briefly described some of these studies um, yes. and the LD50. Could you maybe expand upon that just a little bit? And I know you've done numerous studies um, 
for, and maybe an inhalation is probably one of your most commonly done studies. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, sure. That was you know a major effort at the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health, and my former teacher and later on my boss was Dr. Allery, Eve Allery, who is a world-renowned toxicologist. And uh, we established in, in the laboratories many LC50, lethal concentration of a material which kills 50% of the exposed animals. It's not a very nice thing to do to an animal, and you never ever should kill an animal if you don't get answers uh, uh, from it. Just for the fun of it, it's no, it, that, that should not be allowed. And have you... What types of uh, studies were you involved in personally? I assume most of these were chemical exposures. Uh, some some chemical exposures, endotoxins, um, you know, uh, a variety of, you know, like Cliff said, everything is a chemical. Water is a chemical. So you, uh, endotoxins? How? I'm curious. Those are produced by bacteria. How did you, how do you, uh, gather the endotoxins and make sure that it's just the endotoxins causing this effect on these animals? Well, we used, uh, the, uh, the whole study was sponsored by Cotton Incorporated, and it had something to do with the cotton industry. And in the cotton industry, people get exposed to cotton dust, of course, when they are carding it or spinning it or what have you. And uh, one of the active ingredients, so to speak, in cotton dust are you know, the endotoxins. Endotoxins are produced by gram-negative bacteria, and they are inhaling, and they do have an effect on the lung of the exposed people. Well, we couldn't and didn't use humans. That's very difficult to do nowadays, if not impossible. But we produced the same effects in uh, guinea pigs. They had breathing difficulties, tightness of the chest, and all of that. We, I, uh, I, it produced the identical effect in the animal that humans uh, were experiencing. And I resuspended cotton dust, which we got from cotton mills in North and South Carolina. I see. Okay. Well, thanks for adding to that. And uh, I'd like to follow up to uh, some of the questions that we've had brought to us from time to time from people out there in the industry. One of them is that, uh, are you concerned that we may also be killing off some of the good bacteria or uh, as a part of this uh, disinfecting process? Well, um, I think that a good disinfectant's not going to take any prisoners, okay? So it's going to kill the good ones and it's going to kill the bad ones. And I think nature has somewhat of a balance. And I think that this balance is going to um, go back to its its normal equilibrium. Okay. And uh, what one of the most common, um, another common reason people say that we shouldn't use these antimicrobials is that we are dealing with people who may have these chemical sensitivities. How do you recommend that people applying your products handle that issue? Do you have them use a questionnaire of some type or just... Um, as you mentioned, you give them the label, but I'm not sure if that's uh, enough in these situations where people claim to have these chemical sensitivities and very well may have them. Well, I, I think that, well, one of the things that happens in Pennsylvania, and this is very interesting, is if 
uh, you're in the pest control business or in the lawn, lawn and turf business uh, in Pennsylvania, there's actually a list. And if you are chemically sensitive, you can actually put your name on this list. And if your name is on this list, uh, it's public notice. And the companies that are applying these types of products to your lawn, to your turf outside, et cetera, need to provide you due and timely notice that they're going to be making these applications. They're not allowed to make these applications in so many feet uh, of where you live and where you work and, and where you reside. Uh, I tend to find a lot of people are really dishonest in, in, terms, in terms of this, in terms of consumers. And I don't really believe they have the chemical sensitivities. I think that they develop this chemical sensitivity as some way of extracting more money from the contractor in the form of money or services or whatever, something else from their insurance company. As far as multi-chemical sensitivity goes, I'm sure that some people have it. Uh, I, have, I have no doubt. And I think in terms of products, I think one of the things that can be done is to select products that make a lower uh, impact uh, on the consumer. And one of the ways that you can do that is by using a product that doesn't have a fragrance in it. You know, you, you, yes. need, the, you need the active components to clean. You need the active components to destroy the microorganisms or to accomplish anything else that you're trying to accomplish. I think anything that's added to that, such as a fragrance that's unnecessary, uh, should, not, should not be there for those types of people. Now, many people like a fragrance product. It gives them a, a good feeling of well-being and a feeling of, of health and cleanliness and smells clean. Yeah, absolutely, mm. smells clean, is clean. Um, okay, well, that, I think that helps answer that. I just, I had heard that before, that there were these uh, lists available, and actually, my, my, I guess I'm curious, so before the pesticide applicator, let's say I'm going out to, um, oh, let's say I'm going out to kill some termites in a home. Do I have to look at this list before going out? And the make sure that person isn't on the list. Correct. The applicator needs to look out. There's one other thing, Joe, that I'd like to add that I that I forgot. Uh, one of the things that I would do as a remediator is I would have with me a, a sample of the product, and what I would do is I would dip a business card in it or a piece of paper, and I would allow the customer to smell this, and I call that a sniff test. You know, so essentially, Mr. Hughes, this is what your house is going to smell like after I apply my product. Uh, do, you, uh, do you find this offensive? Do you find this irritating? Uh, you know, if you do, I'm not going to apply it. Okay. And I guess what I'm getting at is that if pesticide applicators have access to this list, should we maybe not be teaching mold remediators that this is available, or is it available to them, or water damage restoration people, do they know this list exists, and do they have access to it? Well, certainly it's a matter of public record. You can go on and you can access it. Um, many, in many states, antimicrobial products are not, whether, whether you need a license or not, uh, to use an antimicrobial product is really a state-by-state it's enforced on a state-by-state -state basis. Okay. So what happens is some states require applicators to have a license. Other states do not require it. Uh, there are some issues about using anti there are some issues about using pesticide products in schools, where you have to notify uh, the children and, and parents and so on and so forth about what you know what's being used. But I think that they're somewhat unrelated. I think the fact that someone has a mole problem and we're going to use 
uh, chlorine bleach or some other type of antimicrobial inside their environment, and we're going to spray something on their lawn. It's entirely different. You know, speaking of lawns, it's funny. I'm pretty lazy and I'm pretty inept when it comes to uh, doing stuff around the house. And, you know, so my wife and I actually have someone who cuts the grass, and we actually have one of the big uh, lawn service companies that comes in and treats our lawn. And one evening I was at home with my wife, and it's about 7 o'clock, and the phone, uh, the phone number rings, and we have caller ID, so I could tell who it was. It was the lawn service. So essentially I picked up the phone, and, you know, she says, you know, Mr. Slotnick, we're coming to your house tomorrow. We're doing our routine treatment and, and so on and so forth. And she says, you know, by the way, you could have these grubs in your lawn. And these grubs can be destroying your lawn, you know, chewing it up and, and so on and so forth. And she's telling me about grubs or insects and, and so on and so forth. And then she said, you know, we have this special grub treatment. And, you know, for another $25 in addition to this other 30 or 40 that you paid, you know, for the service, uh, we can take care of this for you. You know, do you want it done? And, you know, naturally I bought it. I was going to get it. <laughs> my, my guess would have been, yes, you were, you were, you had that done. Uh, now, I also want to quickly while we have a chance have you comment on the different categories of antimicrobials we have we hear of uh, you mentioned one first of all chlorine bleach or bleach what are your thoughts on the use of bleach in water damage restoration after floods or mold remediation or okay. all three all right well let, let me clarify um let me clarify. Okay, first of all, the, the chemical class that bleach falls into, bleach is a halogen. Okay. And halogens generally end in I-N-E. So you have chlorine, bromine, iodine, all those things are, are all halogens. Uh, in terms of using chlorine bleach as part of a mold remediation project or part of a flood remediation project, I'm anti-chlorine bleach. Uh, it's an excellent disinfectant. There's, there's no doubt about it, but it's not a very good cleaner. So in order to use it, it's like double work. You have to clean everything and prepare everything first. Also, it's susceptible to becoming ineffective based on the surfaces upon which it might be put, such as wood, such as cement. Uh, it can also cause collateral damage. Uh, to metals and so on and so forth. However, the other there are a couple of other halogens which I kind of like. You know, if I have a, if I had a hot tub which I don't have, I would probably put bromine in the hot tub because I think it's a very effective antimicrobial uh, that's in that class. And also iodine is in that class, and there's some pretty good uh, iodine disinfectants. You know, we may know them more for as a skin antiseptic like betadine, mm -hmm. uh, but there's some pretty good uh, iodine antimicrobial products. And while I would be anti-chlorine just because chlorine by itself doesn't work very well, if you had a built uh, cleaner disinfectant, such as one an iodophore product, which is one based on iodine, I would be very much in favor of those and you know, have advocated the use of that product. I just don't like bleach by itself. Okay, let's move to the next category, the quaternary ammonia. Quaternary ammonia products, uh, maybe you could expand upon or expound upon well, uh, what the, they are, how they work, and you know what the best uses are for them. Yeah, Dieter can probably correct me on this if I screw it up, but it was my it was my opinion that, or, or I, I think if, I, if I'm getting the information right, relating it right, that after World War II, Germany as a country was devastated. And prior to that, there was a big soap-making industry in Europe and around the world, and most soap was actually made from animal fat. They would collect 
the fat from the slaughtering of animals, and they would make that into into soap. And there were no animals. You know, they had all been eaten and destroyed or died of disease or or whatever. And actually, a lot of synthetic detergents were made in Germany following World War II uh, for use in soap and, and cleaning and so on and so forth. And that's apparently where the quats were initially developed, at least that's what I'd heard. And they were developed as synthetic detergents. And one of the byproducts that they found is not only did they clean really, really well and were pretty gentle on skin and so on and so forth, but they were also antimicrobial in their action. And actually, these types of products are known as cationic surfactants. People have them in their home. You know, they'll tell you that I don't want you to use an antimicrobial product in my home, but I use downy fabric softener or some other type of fabric softener, which is the same type of technology. Uh, the, the, most fabric softeners are cationic surfactants. They're the same as quads. Dieter, can you confirm that history for uh, us? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I worked 10 years for the Bayer uh, Corporation headquarters in Germany, and I heard those even though. I was not really, uh, uh, well, here in the United States where I worked, we did not do studies on these materials. But anecdotally, yes, uh, I, I, heard, uh, I heard those stories. Yes, indeed. And that is um, something that you were familiar with. From, I know you were very, very young. Uh, you've moved here, what, 35 years ago now? Uh, almost 45. <laughs> almost 45. You're still a young man in my eyes, Dieter. I, I know that many a young man has tried to take you out and yeah. <laughs> uh, keep you out late and think that uh, you wouldn't be in early the next morning, and they were quite surprised. Uh, Dieter's, uh, he's still one of my, <laughs> he's my hero when it comes to dealing with those types. We get the young bucks in there on occasion that think they're going to take advantage of us, huh, Dieter? Yeah, well. <laughs> Every once in a while, us old-timers have to let them know what's happening. What about the next category here, uh, Cliff? The the phenols, they're commonly referred to. Give us a little information on those, if you would. Well, I, I think I gave you a little bit. I, I said that Lister uh, played around with carbolic acid, which was uh, which is actually phenol. And what's happened is that um, there are better phenols today, which are synthesized phenols. Uh, example would be orthophenolphenol is, is a pretty common one. That used to be uh, pretty common. It was used in household Lysol and, and, and so on and so forth. And these are very good disinfectants. One of the advantages of the uh, phenolic type disinfectant over quats is that they were better in terms or that uh, phenols are oftentimes are used in hospitals where more thorough disinfection is important in dealing with something like tuberculosis. You know, for instance, before hepatitis testing came out, what most documents by CDC, most recommendations, uh, were to use a phenolic disinfectant because they worked against TB before there was any test protocol for dealing with hepatitis. So they're generally uh, oftentimes a higher level of, of disinfectant, but along with that goes you can have some skin issues, you can have some smell issues uh, with them, and um, they're more hazardous than quads. I understand. And uh, they are used very commonly in hospital disinfection and disinfection of uh, hospitals. Hospitals, and, and people are exposed to them probably on a daily basis, particularly if you go to a dentist, because it's a high probability that you know they're used a lot in dentist offices for uh, spraying the chairs and everything between patients, and I commonly used there. What 
about the uh, peroxides? Can you comment on the peroxide uh, type disinfectants? And I don't know if it's even classified as a disinfectant. Well, th there are. I mean, first of all, we have household peroxide at three percent, which is you know used on skin. I don't personally believe that household peroxide at three percent is going to be a really good antimicrobial agent on surfaces, and I would not recommend that that be utilized. However, there are some excellent there's some excellent chemistry that's based on um, that's based on hydrogen peroxide, and it can be hydrogen peroxide uh, that is uh, augmented, uh, or, or, or they add chemicals to it to make it work synergistically. And in fact, there are even some sterilant products, which are the highest level of disinfectants, which use something called parasitic acid in conjunction with hydrogen peroxide. And I think the government tends to like it. I think the EPA, uh, you know, has a soft spot in its heart for uh, for hydrogen peroxide. Is peroxide, I, my understanding in, in doing some training up in the main area was that the uh, some of the products that are used, some of the antimicrobials that are used that have a peroxide base to them are not as regulated in some way as that a misconception because they said that they were able to use certain products that had a peroxide without having an applicator's license, but other products that weren't peroxide they had to have an applicator's license. And without using brand names, I just was curious if you had right. heard that. I'm I'm not sure. I I think the bottom line is you either need an applicator's license or you don't. And um, it, you know it, it it's one or the other. And I don't I, it would. You know, one of the differences is with with, with pesticides, uh, insecticides, rodenticides, and so on and so forth. You need what's called a pesticide applicator's license in every state in the United States in order to buy those products. So it's not like you go to one of our sponsors and you go into their store or you order it mail order. You actually need a license, and when you go in, they actually card you in order to you know to buy those products. In our industry, the products that we use, even at the highest level, like a hospital sterilant, which Generally, I would not recommend being used unless you were dealing with surgical instruments or something like that. Um, you do not need a license for it. One of the other issues, I I don't know if it's an issue, but it's a comment I hear com uh, commonly from mold remediators when they're done with a project to assist them in passing the post-remediation verification, they will fog antimicrobials. I... I, I, I I have a hard time with that as a um, remediation technique. Maybe I'm maybe I misunderstand what they're doing, but I think they're using it in in a way that maybe it wasn't intended to be used. But you did mention before that these some of these products are fogged. Well, I th I think it gets back to the label again: whether you're permitted to fog the product or you're not permitted to fog the product. I would be an advocate of fogging under certain circumstances. Let's think about what fogging does, even if it's water. You know, what happens is you're putting very fine droplets in the air. Uh, you also have uh, an aerosol that, that we know, that air that's in that room is an aerosol. And what's in that aerosol? You know, you're, it could be partly a bioaerosol because we're going to have things that could either come alive or were alive or, or may have been dislodged uh, during the remediation correct. process. Correct. So we can have some natural byproducts that are floating around. Plus, you can have dust. Plus, you can have skin. Plus, you can have 
all this other stuff. So just wet misting, you know, kind of like as would be used for asbestos in terms of an engineering control, is going to bring, uh, by process of agglomeration, one particle hitting another and forming a bigger particle, it's actually going to settle out. And I think that it's going to make, it's going to result in cleaner air. So I would be in favor of misting, whether it's water or amended water, water and detergent, or, or an antimicrobial in certain situations. Where I would be more in favor of fogging an antimicrobial would be more in dealing with the fecal matter from either pigeons or bats in, in those situations. Those that we know are really highly pathogenic or potentially pathogenic. Correct types of uh, fungi. The fungi that grow on those are oftentimes pathogenic. Correct. So again, I think that the reason that they're misting is probably more for dust control of the air than anything else. Now, we do get a lot of questions about um, cleanup of avian feces for using the uh, plate terminology, Uh, pigeons and bats and so on with this fungi growing on top of it, and I understand CDC and NIOSH have some guidelines for that, and they're, they do use antimicrobials. Are you familiar with those guidelines? Can you give yeah, I'm a, a little, little I, I'm familiar with the guidelines, and um, one of the things that they're really trying to do, is, I think, is kind of kill spores in the guano, and some of the, some of the spores that you can have there are very, very difficult to kill. And I've seen in one of the documents, either the CDC NIOSH document or in a document that I got off of the Internet that I have is is referenced in my office, where they had actually suggested the use of formaldehyde actually in, 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 in dealing with it. And you really would need a special permit in order to do this because most formaldehyde products are really off the market at this at this particular point. But personally, I am a big believer uh, in formaldehyde and actually was involved with a client in dealing with an anthrax situation, one of the more highly publicized anthrax situations. And they were having trouble uh, obtaining clearance. And one of the things that they got permission to do was to do thermal fogging in that environment using um, a formaldehyde derivative. I see. And And, uh, they got clearance what type of clearance I'm, I'm curious was it uh, I think I, I think zero anthrax zero was, anthrax so, but, <laughs> but it was but zero anthrax in with respect to colony forming or you know with respect to zero living anthrax or zero now this is actually killing the spores killing the spores yeah, so killing we the had spores, to kill right. them we didn't we couldn't necessarily get rid of every single spore right. in they, the they building. had they had done as thorough of a cleaning as was possible but this was a building in which these you know anth- I, I guess they would be weapons grade anthrax spores got loose within this environment and what was amazing is prior to doing that they caused a tremendous amount of environmental damage using world health recommendations uh, of using chlorine bleach, and I mean, they just made a mess of the place. I, I just got back from uh, Greenville, South Carolina, and we had two courses going on in Greenville. We had a certified mold remediator course with about 14 people in it, and then we had a certified indoor environmentalist course, and uh, Ian Call, who is a, another IAQA approved instructor, asked me to 
asked me to come in and uh, discuss mold remediation and indoor environmental quality remediation issues with his indoor environmentalists. After my discussion, I, you know, and I, I, as I told our listeners before, I tried to present both sides of the issue that, you know, we don't want to add chemicals that uh, some people may be, uh, may respond to these chemicals that they may not be necessary for certain projects. And then I go and explain the other side and some of the things that you've discussed. Now, the question came back to me on the break, um, or actually the comment came back to me that uh, this gentleman said, I wouldn't, I don't use antimicrobials because I don't use anything that I wouldn't drink on a mold remediation project. I'm curious, would you uh, would you drink your QGC there, Cliff? Uh, have you drank your QGC? <laughs> I, no, I've not drunk QGC, but I've, I've drunk uh, <laughs> microband disinfectant spray plus on an occasion. I, I had uh, one of our employees who was making it, and typically we had a very thorough regimen of industrial hygiene uh, done. You know, we brought in pros, and they determined what levels of protective equipment were going to be needed when they were making the product, and they determined that respiratory protection was not required, nor were gloves, and one of these employees somehow splashed it into his eye, and he'd gotten it on his face, and he wasn't sure, you know, what he should do and, you know, shouldn't do, and I, you know, I said, number one, we want to wash it out. Number two, we're going to take you to the doctor, uh, you know, no questions with that, and number three, here, watch this, and, and I took a little sip, and, you know, he kind of felt better, and, uh, <laughs> and I think that sometimes... Uh, you know these, you know these things really you know need to be done. You know one of the things that you re- that you didn't mention that I get all the time is the super bugs. Oh yeah, you know? I forgot. Okay. And you know we tend to uh, get asked that all the time. Do the antimicrobial products that we uh, utilize create super bugs? And one of the most common bugs that they're concerned about today is this MRSA, this methicillin uh, resistant staph aureus. You know, there's an M and it's methicillin. Methicillin. Right, correct. Which is an antibiotic. It's not microband resistant staph aureus. Because <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, these the same antimicrobials that killed these germs before still kill them today. The same as if you're hunting uh, and you're using a 22, it's going to still bring down that rabbit. So, But the, the MRSA is a a different strain, I believe, from the Staphylococcus aureus. Correct. What, what's happened is, yeah, absolutely, it's uh, engineered itself. And I think one of the common reasons that people have it is uh, abuse of antibiotics. You know, that's a big problem. Most people that get these prescriptions for 10 days, they begin feeling better on day six or seven, and they figure, well, I'll save some money. Uh, I won't finish taking the regimen, and then those organisms have an opportunity to, uh, you know, only the strong survive. And, you know, what happens is through evolution, some of those are, you know, can become more resistant to, more resistant to antibiotics, not necessarily more resistant to antimicrobials. The the action is different. We had a, uh, for those of you that are listeners, you can go back to one of our previous shows, Dr. Felicia. Ciancirello discussed that just a little bit. I believe that was like episode four or five. What I'd like to do before we move on is um, if we could get Dr. Wow back on the line here for just a moment. Dieter, are you still there? 
Yes, I am still here. You uh, are you still playing with the lawyers over there, or are you able? To uh, well, I just uh, Federal X, uh, FedEx uh, just stopped in front of my house and gave me three inches of something. <laughs> <laughs> little light reading for the season. Light here. reading, yes, uh, yes, indeed. Just curious if you had any comments or well, questions. Well, it's interesting. Uh, this is the thing. I mean, yeah, the superbug. Uh, you know, and we had chlordane and we had DDT, and they said, oh, that did this, that, and that did that. And we know that through the misuse of antibiotics, you know, things have happened. Do we want to throw all of them away? I think not. You know, I would like to have those available and, uh, you know, live in a so-called non-chemical environment, it's it's going to be a tough one. And, you know, how do we know whether we are doing everything right? We are living longer, but somebody may say, yeah, I have now allergies. I'm miserable. I have chemical sensitivity to a bunch of them. And, you know, people make that point. We are surrounded by chemicals. You know, you literally can't eat anything that had in contact with some plastic. When I was a kid... We didn't know what plastic was. It didn't exist in my hometown. There was, you know, steel and glass. And stone, that, huh? That was it. Yeah. yeah. And another thing is, talking about infection, that certainly is part of it. I just read that on the plane from Indianapolis. In very round numbers, in Pennsylvania has now a registry of hospital infections. Like I sometimes say with tongue-in-cheek, if you really want to get a good infection, <laughs> stick around a hell of a lot of uh, uh, hospitals and you're going to be guaranteed. In very round numbers, we get about, in Pennsylvania, think about that, 20,000 infections per year. And in all of Pennsylvania, we have about a, 180, let's say 200 hospitals. Now we have to divide 20,000 by 200. That is, per hospital, we have 100 infections. I don't know what they are. Are they very serious? But per hospital, 100 infections. And again, in round numbers, that is, you know, 10 a month or something like that. Hmm. Is that, yeah, haven't we applied <laughs> enough um, uh, um, pesticides, <laughs> insecticides, <laughs> Um, um, and so on. I, I don't know, but that is an interesting, an interesting thing altogether. Well, thanks for the thank you for your input and for being with us again here. Uh, we really appreciate having you on the line, Dieter. And uh, but what I, I'd like to quickly, I know Cliff has his opinions on the uh, issue you brought up with the DDT, and yeah. maybe maybe we could just tease the listeners with a little start on that here and then uh we'll bring back that subject a little bit later i think maybe, maybe uh next week maybe next week you never know although next week we might take a week off we i don't know Cliff, it or whatever, we could maybe. pre-record it and put something up for listeners uh let's see what we can do what what i know you've been looking at what what is that website that you were uh oh we can't give it away uh, okay secret website we're we don't want to give away the trivia questions either. So. No, we can't. Actually, the website's uh, junkscience.com. Okay, junkscience. It's a pretty good, uh, pretty good website. And uh, in any event, uh, 
you know, I lived through I lived through the uh, as as Dieter, you know, talked about you know living through things when he was a kid, and I lived through some of the stuff when I was a kid as well, because my family was in the pest control business, actually still is, and you know we uh, lived through the whole DDT issue, and you know there are a couple of things about DDT that you know people probably don't know that actually DDT was the most life-saving medical discovery in the last 100 years, that DDT saved more lives than antibiotics, the polio vaccine, uh, et cetera. And it actually saved over 500 million lives due to malaria, dengue fever, and other mosquito-borne plagues. A fellow by the name of Paul Mueller, who worked for a Swiss chemical firm called Geige, actually uh, developed the product. And, you know, they didn't crucify him. They didn't throw him in jail. They just gave him the Nobel Peace Prize for medicine in 1948. Nobel Medicine Prize, okay. Right. Yep. Okay. okay. Or, I'm sorry, the Medicine Prize in yep. 1948. And, um, you know, we we're from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and a woman by the name of Rachel Carson was from Pittsburgh and you know she wrote a book called Silent Spring. And um that book created the environmental movement in the United States, caused the EPA to be created, uh, caused uh, among other things DDT to be banned. And one of the interesting things about Rachel Carson is she really in my opinion she has a mixed legacy. You know, she in on one side is goddess of the environmental movement, and in Pittsburgh we have a bridge named after her. And we've got some cleaner rivers and so on and so forth too. I guess we have to. Uh, right. The environmental movement isn't all bad, certainly, but yeah, and that's something to be proud of. Okay. Yes. You know, the other side is how would you like to be known and be directly responsible for convincing the public that DDT is so evil that we should accept the deaths of millions of people in poor countries to remove it. So, um, And that's one of the things that concerns me about our industry now. I think it's exactly the same thing with antimicrobials. I think they are at risk, uh, and I think we have in our industry, we have non-scientific people like Rachel Carson. She was a non-scientist making unsound recommendations against the use of these products. And I'm just amazed by our industry. There are what I consider industry parrots. You hear the same stuff over and over and over again. You know, I'd like to be asked another antimicrobial myth, but I, we certainly covered them all, and I'm sure that you haven't heard any different ones either. You know, it's time for some original thought. And, you know, we have unscientifically qualified people who have been given influential positions in our industry who have an unbridled opportunity to influence people and just proliferate this made-up stuff. It's, it's bad. Well, we certainly have people who have the opposite opinion, and we welcome any callers or if you'd like to be a guest and discuss your side of the story. I, I always like to call myself the man in the middle here. I... I like to uh, consider both sides of the story. I find it fascinating that Cliff comes up with some of the information he does, especially the DDT information. Dieter, I know you and I have talked about that a little bit in the past, and uh, I think there are some you know, 
there were some good reasons and some maybe not so good reasons why some of these products aren't used anymore. Um, but uh, I know they are now considering allowing the use of DDT again in certain parts of Africa because of the tremendous problem they're having with these mosquito-borne diseases. Absolutely. I don't know. Can can you still hear yes. me? Yes, we can. Yeah. Well, yeah, you got to do <clears throat> we do it on a daily basis. We got to do risk assessment. You know, you, you got to ask yourself, what do I want to achieve and how can I achieve it? And, uh, you know, there is, there is nothing in this whole world that doesn't have a risk associated with it one way or another. And, uh, you know, there is no risk-free world. I cannot tell you with 100% certainty that there isn't an airplane going to fall down, God forbid, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I, I, we don't know that. We can, we, we, we could build better airplanes, but then you would pay, uh, you know, $10,000 to fly from Pittsburgh to uh, New York. And we made, we made that risk assessment in our own mind and say, well, you know, it's it's pretty darn safe, and uh, I uh, I jump on that airplane. The, the record is pretty good. Very good. Well, with that, I think we will be wrapping things up for this week. I would like to, first of all, say thanks to my co-host, Cliff Slotnick, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, CJ, the cyber jockey, Zach Slotnick, here in the studio, and most importantly to you, our growing group of loyal listeners, thanks for being with us. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio, although we will put news up on the website as to what we're going to do about next Friday since it's uh, the day after Thanksgiving. We'll figure that one out after we leave the studio here this afternoon over uh, a little bit of lunch. What do you think, Cliff? That sounds good to me. Thanks, all. We'll see you next week. Good afternoon. Goodbye. Goodbye, Dieter.